This is Aliens and Artist, Part 1, with Kirsten Blackburn, artist, co-founder of the Experiencer Group, and Experiencer herself. She went to school with Russell Tark's kids, practiced ESP during recess, had an angel hair event, trigger warning, children eat angel hair in this episode. Do they live to tell the tale? Also, Kirsten's family picked up another odd family of hitchhikers and no one can recall how they parted ways or what the conclusion was. It's Famnesia, family amnesia, around a nominality. Also, a shared experience of time compression. But first, Kirsten's family roots, which involve espionage and Kirsten being conceived on an abandoned runway from World War II, although apparently not that abandoned. My grandmother and my grandfather met in Southampton in England during World War II, and they were both working for Supermarine, which is the factory that was building Spitfires at the time. And my grandmother was a secretary and my grandfather was an engineer. And of course, the war was happening all around them. At some point, they met, probably through some friends, and they fell in love and they got married. But one of the things that happened during that time was that my grandmother, when she was a secretary, her boss, who who wasn't my grandfather, it was a, a different man, he had an office that she would work out of. And there was a German gentleman working at Super, Supermarine at the time. And everybody knew he was German and that was fine. There was some kind of exchange going on, but of course we were battling the Germans at the time or they were. So she walks into the office one day and the German gentleman is rifling through her boss's trash can and she shocks him and he gets startled and he looks like he's, he pretends like he's not doing anything and he quickly leaves the room. Well, later that day, my grandmother brought it up with her boss at the time. She said, Oh, by the way, this, guy was rifling through your trash can. And he was like, wait a minute, stop, stop right there. And he left the room really quickly. And later that day, I guess the German guy was hauled off in handcuffs and determined to be a spy. So my grandmother, it was a big lore in the family that (laughs) my little grandmother weighed all of a hundred pounds, you know, caught a German spy during World War II. So then, of course, my grandparents got married and the Supermarine factory uh, was actually bombed during that time. And my grandmother, this is kind of a little key into the sort of deep intuition that happens in my family, especially to the women in my family. And that is that she would ride her bicycle to work in the morning and she was very often late, which also runs in the family. She was late this particular morning and she noticed that a lot of the factory workers were on the road walking in the opposite direction. And it was really confusing for her and they looked really freaked out. And it turned out that that was the day that the Nazis bombed the Supermarine factory. And she said that she felt like the fact that she was running late and the fact that she wasn't there when it happened protected her and protected us as a family. So I guess the moral of that story is 
it doesn't, maybe sometimes it's good to be late. (laughs) 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 I live by that, I guess. So they had to, the supermarine factory had to go essentially underground, I guess, and move out into the countryside and, you know, get off the grid so that they wouldn't get bombed again because the Spitfire was, you know, really important in winning the war. So by that time, my mother was born and my uncle was born and they went and lived in the forest, essentially in these little huts. And that's where all the engineers were for Supermarine at the time. So I wanted to just set that up because it was an important part of my family mythology and lore. But after the war was won and my poor grandmother had a nervous breakdown and that's a whole other story, but my grandfather was recruited by Lockheed Martin during what's called the brain drain, post-war brain drain, to come and work in the United States, specifically in Los Angeles in 1955. So he took the job, packed up the family, and they all took a boat over to New York City and then moved to uh, Panorama City So they in Los Angeles. So they went from this kind of beautiful countryside suburb of Southampton to the epicenter of Los Angeles in the 50s, which I think was a huge culture shock for the whole family. And he continued to work for Lockheed Martin until he retired in about 1985 or 86, maybe later than that. He had a top secret job. He worked in the space program and in defense. And after being in Los Angeles for a while, he was recruited up to Sunnyvale, which is Moffett Field, Lockheed Martin. And when I was born in 1967, I was basically moved into my grandparents' house, which was on a hill in Los Altos Hills, and it had a beautiful view of Sunnyvale. And you could see the hangar in Moffett Field from the living room window. So as I grew up, and we eventually had our own house, but I spent a lot of time with my grandparents' home. As I grew up, I would look out the window all the time and be able to point to the place where my grandfather worked you know, miles and miles away, but there it was. And he'd come home from work and I would always ask him, what did you, you know, how was your day? What did you do for work today? And he was a very proper English gentleman from Norfolk. And he would say, well, can't talk about it. Won't talk about it. Top secret. Don't you know? So we would play that game all the time. and, And I kind of enjoyed hearing him say that. It kind of made me feel uh, like we were connected to something important. Then he he got my father a job at Lockheed Martin, and that was in Southern California, in Saugus. Uh, that actually, <laughs> that was actually before I was born. So I'm jumping around a little bit, but my father told me recently that, and I was a little embarrassed. He's almost eighty, but he told me that when he was working in Los Angeles, and I wasn't conceived yet. He remembers the day I was conceived <laughs> and it was probably on an, in, in our little house in Saugus. And it was probably on an old runway from world war II. So I was essentially, we were laughing about this. I was essentially conceived on an old runway for airplanes. 
And so airplanes play a, a really big part of my life. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Best conception story ever. <laughs> and it's got to be my dad, right? You know, he's always wants to embarrass me. But I kind of dig that, you know, I've got a Corsair tattooed on my back and I've always had a thing for the Spitfire and any airplanes from World War II. So my dad, I guess at some point, because it was the 60s and we were living in Palo Alto by then, he quit working for Lockheed Martin. He realized that he was contributing to the war efforts and to weaponry and stuff like that. And he just was like, no, nope, don't want to do this anymore. I basically want to drop out and raise my family in a really wholesome way. And I don't think that went over well with my grandparents at all, in fact. But he basically became a hippie. My mother was, you know, they were both pretty adorable hippies and uh, real young. And they proceeded to start selling handmade jewelry on Stanford University campus. So we were living in Palo Alto and they would drive this old 52 Chevy with me and my brother in the back. And we, they would put down a blanket and they would sell these pieces of handmade jewelry. And my brother and I would just run around Stanford University campus with a bunch of other kids, children of other hippies doing the same thing and their dogs, and we would swim in all the, all the fountains, especially during the summer. We'd just take, essentially strip down to our underwear and swim in the fountains. And we'd run around into all the classrooms and through the campus. We just went, no one, there was no supervision at all. And it was pretty great, I have to say. I guess what I kind of knew was going on at Stanford at that time was, you know, Stanford Research Institute. Of course, that's Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, Pat Price, and all the crazy remote viewing stuff that was going on. My father was kind of into that. So he took, I mean, what he knew of it, of course, a lot of that was extraordinarily top secret, but he took the family to see Yuri Geller when I was about maybe between six and eight years old. So I actually saw Yuri Geller on stage, which is really cool to remember because now, of course, I listen, you know, to Jeffrey Mishlove and, you know, all the stories about the Psy experiments that were going on at Stanford at the time. And then they moved, they moved off the campus, of course. So they weren't even on the campus at that time. But yeah, so that was an interesting taste of what was to come later for me, I guess. And one of the things that occurred at the same time was I was in elementary school and I had this, what, what I now know was an angel hair experience. And so, but first of all, I want to tell you my elementary school, I found out recently in the last few years that I actually went to school with Russell Targ's kids. And I didn't know them at the time, but when I actually got to meet Russell Targ at a screening for his film, Third Eye Spies, he, I went up to tell him that, you know, a lot of the targets that they used for the remote viewing in that film, I used to ride my bike around and 
I used to, I knew those areas really well. I used to swim at Rinconada Park, swimming pool. And it, that was just my home stomping ground. I mean, we were free range kids. We, we could go anywhere we wanted. And so he goes, oh, well, that, what school did you go to? And I said, well, I went to this particular elementary school. And he said, well, you went, you went to school with my kids. And that was Elizabeth and Alex Targ. And I had had no idea, but I did tell him, I said, you know, the funny thing is, Mr. Targ, when we were taking our breaks at school, we were little kids, we would stand around in the play field when we weren't playing and we'd talk about ESP. And it would be like, do you have ESP? I have ESP. Do you have ESP? And he just got this look on his face. Like, oh my God, were my kids, like, were they talking about what we were doing at that time? Like, were they taking breaks at school and just spilling the beans? (laughs) (laughs) There was this moment of like, he looked at me and I was like, I was looking at him and I'm like, I, I never thought of that. Right. So fast forward, not fast forward, but just looping back to this angel hair experience, which essentially was the same period of time. It was probably between 1973 and 1976. And I'm thinking it was more like around 1973, 1974. I was at school and it was recess. And all of a sudden this weird stuff started falling from the sky. And I had never seen snow before. So I think if I had seen snow, I would have thought I was just snowing, but it wasn't, it was like these lacy, long gelatinous things that kind of floated down from the sky. And I remember thinking, this is really weird. Like, what is this? And it would land on the grass and it would kind of slowly dissolve into the grass. And I picked up a piece. I was like, you know, kids are curious. So I, I, I picked up a piece in my fingers and it sort of slowly dissolved in my fingers. And I, I just was like, this is very weird. There's something really important about this. And all of a sudden, all the teachers were like, get inside, get inside. We don't know what this is. And, and they ushered us all inside and they made us stay indoors until later that day. And then before they let us out, they said, okay, we found out what that stuff is. It's just, it's spider webs. And there are these spiders that migrate by having these webs that float through the air. And, you know, they said something about South America. It was like this really detailed (laughs) answer. And I kind of thought to myself, God, you know, that's, that's fine. I'll, I'll take it. But oddly spider webs don't, that I know of dissolve in your fingers, but I was a kid. So, you know, maybe spider webs do dissolve in your fingers. You don't know that kind of thing when you're a kid. But one of the things that my, some other kids said is that, that there was nothing left in the field after that happened. Like if it would have been spider webs, they would have been, there would have stayed there, I think. And honestly, I'm terrified of spiders. I I mean, I would have horrible dreams about spiders. Spiders freaked me out. So if there was a single spider in that stuff, I would have been gone. I would have been (laughs) running away. And the cool thing is that since, of course, since we started the Experiencer Group, we have a wonderful member member who has corroborated this story 
because she was actually, and she's given me permission to talk about this. She was actually in Palo Alto, probably the same year on a trip and saw the same thing. And her brothers and sisters were really curious. There weren't any adults around, you know, oddly, a lot of my memories about the seventies are there were no adults around, you know, but anyway, so they were kind of looking at this stuff and it would land on their jacket and kind of dissolve. And, and she told me she, her brothers and sisters tempt, uh, like basically said, try it, taste it, taste it. And she put it in her mouth and tasted it. This is Heather, a friend of Kirsten's now. They didn't know each other at the time, but both experienced the angel hair phenomenon in Palo Alto around the same historical period. We were taking a family vacation and had gotten an RV in Southern California, and we were driving, zigzagging across the U.S., and we spent some time in San Francisco, a little time down by the wharf, and then the RV was parked, according to my mother, for several days at her friend's high school house in Palo Alto on the hill. And so on this particular day, we had apparently walked down to some shops. And as I recall it, we were in these kind of in the midst of these two-story, three-story buildings. But this particular area was like a small parking lot. So we were surrounded on three sides. It was a partly cloudy day but it didn't look like it was gonna rain or anything like that. And all of us kids had matching windbreakers cause it's 1973 and you know, it's kind of the look and they were navy blue. And we looked like we were little uniform people. We were just waiting and this precipitation started coming down. And you know, being from Minnesota, we know what snow is, but this looked different. So we were of course playing with it as it was coming down. And what I seem to recall is like, if you held your hand out, it would almost dissipate before it hit your skin. However, when it landed on the windbreaker, it would sort of remain for a little bit. And being that my brother was an 11 year old boy, he dared me to eat it. And this is the time of pop rocks and like all sorts of crazy stuff, tang, you know, you put this stuff in your mouth and it's supposed to like fizz or do something, right? And so my recollection is, you know, I lifted up my windbreaker, took a lick of whatever it was, and it had a gelatinous feel or to my best recollection, years later, they came out with these like little Listerine gels. They were little sheets that you could put on your tongue and it would dissolve. It was like a cross between that and a communion wafer. It just, it dissolved really quickly, but there was a sort of a gelatinous texture to it. I don't recall any sort of flavor to it. And there was nothing that actually, you know, you swallowed, there wasn't anything left to move, move down the throat or anything like that, but it just sort of disappeared. It kind of looked like spider webs or something lacy. And they were probably in strings or kind of groupings of like four inches long to maybe six at the longest. I'm measuring as an adult, you know, like what did that look like for a 10-year-old body? Like some of them maybe were three inches long. And they kind of look a little lacy. So dimensionally three inches long, not very wide, kind of narrow. Look, I think it's really easy to mistake them for like spider webs because they had, you know, if you were to pull up a spider web, it has that kind of flowy 
lacy texture to it. And yet, like I said, it dissolved very quickly on the skin if we held out our hands. And yet it, it stayed a little bit longer on the polyester cotton windbreakers. So it'd be very different because spiderwebs stick and then, you know, you, it gloms on you and it keeps, it keeps, more of it will stick. So then you have to try to peel it off of you, so to speak. So it had a very different texture because this would hate it touched your skin. So yeah, very different than like that. There's a permanent spider web, whereas the other one was really transient. Have you ever seen anything else like it in your life? No, because I, I think that description is an aggregate of many things that you would try to use to describe it, you know, because there's nothing equal, I think. You couldn't get dandelions to do that, <laughs> for example. You couldn't get spider webs to dissolve like that or be that massive. You know, I'm even thinking of like the cottonwood trees that we have here in Minnesota. That is a very different texture and it, if you put it in your mouth, it would stay in your mouth, <laughs> wouldn't dissolve. And the experience itself is so fleeting that it's hard to really get a handle on like what it is in total. I think the best interpretation is there's some things we just can't explain. And I don't know if that's concrete enough, but I've had so many interesting anomalous experiences that it's really settling for me to have some of them land where other people have experienced the same sort of thing. But to be able to say what is causing it or even give it a name other than what people are calling angel hair, I think is really difficult to do. Do you have any residual regrets or concerns that you ingested this substance? No, I, it seemed perfectly harmless. And maybe the difference of me ingesting it and exploring it in a way other than just touching it and looking at it helped me remember it. Whereas my siblings don't seem to have that recall. And you know, we can go into the artist part of things. I was quite immersed in art as a child and well into my teens and college years. And so much of what I did was very tactile and trying to look at things from many perspectives. So if we're taking things in on, with more than one sense, I think our perception of it is broader or more well-rounded. Back to Kirsten. And I was like, when she told that story to me, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Because I really thought about it as spider webs for so many years. And it wasn't until I was at a, a lecture with Grant Cameron, he mentioned angel hair. And he said, you know, angel hair was something that happened and it usually happened after a UFO sighting and this stuff would fall from the sky. And everyone said, oh, it's just, it's these spiders. It's spider webs. There's nothing to see here. When he mentioned that, I suddenly, it was like, I hadn't thought about it for 20 years or something, 30 years. And I sat up in my chair. I'm like, holy shit, like that, that happened to me. And the point of Grant's lecture that day was the kinds of anomalous things that happen to people where their consciousness shifts 
you know, he talks about downloads a lot and he talks about what is it in your life that makes you kind of go through some kind of ontological awakening. And I think that's what it, what, what happened to me because I remember after that happened, I just was going to the library at school during recess and just trying to find as many books about, I hadn't seen a UFO that day. No one talked about that, but I suddenly was just madly searching for any information about UFOs, cryptids, Bigfoot, anything to do with space, science fiction, mythological creatures. So I think that's what happened. So going back to this member, with the experiencer group, when she said, yes, this happened to me in the same city, probably the same year, and I ate it, I was blown away. And then I also did a show um, called Night Dreams Radio recently, and the host, his name is Gary, was asking me about my angel hair experience, and he proceeded to tell me that he had a similar experience when he was a kid up in Washington state. I think it was near Seattle. And I think he mentioned that his father worked for Boeing at the time. So he had seen this gelatinous stuff and tasted it too. Like I'm like, these kids have so much nerve. I never would have tasted it. When he went home and told his father, his father said something like, yeah, well, we're testing things in the air all the time. Something like that. I'm totally paraphrasing, but I have to tell you, Stuart, my, my mind kind of exploded in that moment because it kind of verified that this had something to do with something, if that makes any sense. Does that make any sense? It makes complete sense. Gary from Night Dreams Radio Show was kind enough to permit us to include this clip of him relating his experience with angel hair in which he also ate it. Now, you talked about angel hair. I remember back in the late 50s, early 60s, when I was going to school, I, uh-huh. saw, I saw something that looked like angel hair. But to me, it was more like cotton candy. It was kind uh-huh. of sticky and real fine. Is that what yep. you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. Very interesting. What do you think's going on? Are you, do you think we're being visited by ETs? Well, I definitely do. And um, I think we've been visited for a really long time. I think this has been going on for at least for decades, if not hundreds of years. Yeah. And as far as the angel hair is concerned, through the experiencer group, I actually met someone who had the same experience at probably the same year as I did, and she happened to be in the same city as me. So that was sort of verified through just meeting people on our site. So that was pretty cool. And, you know, clearly they weren't spider webs because it dissolved and, you know, it actually would dissolve on your skin or, you know, on the ground eventually, and it kind of disappears over time. Well, you know what? I remember tasting it. Seriously. You and you did? I tasted it, and it was really bitter, and it, and it dissolved, just like cotton candy did. And I remember that, because me and my friend Terry Morgan, we found some of it. We were trying to figure what it was, and when I went back home and told my father, who worked at Boeing's, he was uh, actually in charge of the, the 
engineering of the electronics when they were working on the SSD project. Uh-huh. And he yes. said, oh, no, you know, the government does experiments over cities oh. to see. And maybe that's what it was. This is amazing, Gary, because you're the second person who I've talked to. This is just incredible because you tasted it. This other person that I met on our website also tasted it. And I'm wondering if you can tell me if you remember what year that was when when you experienced this. Uh, It would have had been probably about 1960, 61, right around there. Wow, so it was about 10 years earlier than than when I experienced, but within that sort of window of when it was happening, apparently. Yeah, I just I did, I couldn't figure out what it looked like. You know, it kind of reminded me of cottontails also, but it wasn't. Yeah. And it was where we found it was really weird. It was near the baseball diamond where they had the wire fence, you know, to keep the ball from, you know, going where it didn't supposed to go and we saw it on it and it is it was real weird we thought oh gee this is cotton candy oh that's so what that's we thought you tasted it yeah well when you hey when you're a young kid <laughs> you don't think you know you eat color crayons right when you were in grade school <laughs> exactly. at one point Bugs. Yep. So, yeah so you you put a lot of things in your mouth you shouldn't have and, well, and yeah, this is exactly I did. what my, uh, uh, the other, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is what ex- exactly what the other experiencer said to me is that, you know, she was a little kid and she said, well, it came from the sky. It's got to be safe. I'm just going to taste it. Yeah. Wow. Has anybody else said it tasted horrible? <laughs> no, actually, she told me she couldn't remember what it tasted like. She just remembered the texture and that it like slowly melted away in her mouth. Is that what happened to you? It melted, and I remember spitting it out because it was horrible tasting. Horrible. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So we have Kirsten and Heather Ann, who both had angel hair experiences in Palo Alto at the same time. And now we have both. Heather Ann and Gary having had angel hair experiences in which they ingested the substance. Back to Kirsten. It's really interesting for me to be able to map this all out in a bit of a timeline. I kind of want to jump to when I was 12 and my father had started kind of moving from being a hippie to being kind of into the new age and really dabbling in meditation. And he was counseling with a psychic woman. And suddenly there was a lot of really unusual people in my life and really open-minded. Oh God. I mean, I could tell you so many things about living as a hippie child, but like watching a baby being born in the middle of a the desert in Oregon, in Eastern Oregon. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I think we probably spent a lot of time with people who were parts, part of co- like communes, like hippie communes, like out in the mountains in California. And a lot of these people were craftspeople. So, you know, they were doing things like doing stained glass and pottery and jewelry making and leather work. It was a really vibrant because basically my parents' small jewelry business blanket on Stanford University grew into them having an actual shop and just working with a lot of craftspeople. And my dad started sponsoring these 
craft shows. They were kind of like the Renaissance Festival, but they were all about handmade goods. And so that kind of led to us like spending a lot of time in the country with people. Like I remember just being in a hot tub, like all the time, <laughs> like being like in hot tubs and meditating and being barefoot constantly and the smell of patchouli and weed smoke. And we were also really close to the folks who started the, some of the organic gardening movements in the Bay area at the time. And, and, and my friends were, uh, my parents were quite good friends with Paul Hawken, who was connected to Findhorn. And so we, you know, there was this really cool kind of life for a while where we had like chickens in our backyard. My dad had beehives on the roof of our little house. We were kind of the dirty, smelly kids in the neighborhood who wore overalls. And I have to say it was a really great childhood. My parents were able to literally live below poverty level at that time and have all our needs met. It was a really cool thing in Palo Alto at that time. And this was like pre- Silicon Valley. And when, when the Silicon Valley thing kind of happened, when there was a shift from being like small town Palo Alto to like, okay, now it's Silicon Valley, everything's changed. People started driving new cars, the property values skyrocketed. I remember it was like you could buy a cup of coffee for 65 cents one day, and then it was a dollar the next day, you know? And my dad was seeing me, I was in junior high school by this time. And my dad was kind of watching me turn into a teenager. And I think he started feeling really protective of me. And he was doing, like I said, a lot of meditation. He was working with some people in San Francisco who met on a regular basis and did a lot of um, sort of deep spiritual work. So I think he, he went out into the mountains one day and had a revelation. He decided that he was going to pack us all up sell the house and take us, take the family on a road, on the road for a year on a road trip and drive around the country and basically explore as many kind of utopian communities that he could find. Now, my dad was pretty sure of himself and I don't think it ever occurred to him to like ask the rest of the rest of us, if that's what we wanted to do. He was just like, this is what we're doing and that's it. And I was pissed. I was like, I'm 12. I'm in junior high. I'm in community theater. I was, there's a fabulous children's theater in Palo Alto. I was so heavily involved in that. I was, I had multiple crushes on boys. Star Wars had just come out. I'd seen it like five times. I was like, I am into my lifestyle. I don't want to go. I didn't have a choice though. So next thing you know, we're all packed into it. VW van. My brother was 15. I was 12. We're four adults and a dog in a van. It was nuts, like crazy. And we drove down the coast 101 to start and we would visit all the missions. And my dad would make us, we we're being homeschooled. He took us out of school. He's like, we're, you're not going to school for a year. I'm going to teach you. We're going to teach you my mom was, my mom was so gracious and lovely. And so we camped and we drove actually 
down the coast and then basically took, went east and went through the desert. And we were in the desert. By that time, we had upgraded, thank God, to a, a motorhome, to a, a, it was a Dodge Jamboree. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is luxury. You know, after living in a, a VW camper for months, we had this, all this space, but it was still really tight and there was no privacy. And, and suddenly we were, we were in the desert. And I think that was for me, I think there some really interesting stuff happened when we were in the desert for me. I, I have memories of being very free to kind of just walk around with my brother or by myself in the desert. And we met really bizarre people. We stopped at this place in Arizona called Eden hot Springs. And we were there for quite a while. And my parents were basically like, well, we don't want to pay for our children to be here so that they're going to go to work. So my brother and I ended up working like in the kitchen and, and this was a sort of a spiritual community with these hot springs in the right in the middle of the desert. And there was a lot of naked people walking around. There were these mud baths and people would just soak in these mud baths and then walk through the common area, you know, covered in mud and naked. And to me, that was just kind of like normal. It was perfectly normal. So we left in hot springs and I remember a couple of times we would just, my dad would just park the RV somewhere in these really strange places. Like once we woke up, I woke up in the morning, he, he was driving at night, I guess it was really hot or something. And, and I woke up in the morning and looked out of the window of my bed area in the RV. And I saw just the strangest thing. It was like this abandoned schoolhouse and this weird palapa with like rags blowing in the wind. And it was very, it was like a John Carpenter movie or something. And that whole day, my brother and I just wandered around this abandoned schoolyard and these abandoned buildings. And it was almost as though people had just vacated and left everything, like literally like left food on the table. And, and it was super eerie and super weird. And then I guess after a day or so of being there, we moved on. But I remember another thing that happened in the desert that was really bizarre. And that was that we picked up a family that was hitchhiking. I remember it was like the mother and the father and some little kids. And for some reason, I have a memory of them like wearing like homespun or like real natural looking clothing, but they were stranded. So my parents were like, well, let's help them. And we drove them somewhere in the RV, but before we got there, we spent a night and I'm pretty sure this was in Utah. Everyone was kind of, I guess the little kids were sleeping in the cabin or the, on top of the driving space, there's this little overhang where I was sleeping and there were a couple little kids sleeping up there with me. I don't remember how many kids these people had, but I suddenly woke up in the middle of the night and I heard growling and chewing like this chomping sound. And I got up, I was in my nightgown and I kind of crawled over these little kids. Everyone else was fast asleep. And I walked out of the camper into the desert and it was a full moon 
and there was plateaus, like shadows of plateaus out in the distance. And I walked through the desert in my bare feet until I found the, the source of that sound. And it was my dog chewing on the carcass of a, of a cow. And it was so surreal. And to this day, I wonder what, you know, was that a cattle mutilation or was that just a dead cow? And honestly, I just remember feeling really in touch with the world and really like in a magical place. But the weird thing about this story is that I kind of remember getting back in the van. I, I don't honestly remember completely getting back in the van. But one thing no one in my family could remember is what happened to that family. Like, where did we drop them off? Where did they go? Who were they? Where were we taking them? And my brother doesn't remember. I don't remember. My dad doesn't remember. It's like this blank missing part of that trip. And so I think back on that a lot. And I think what, you know, what was, what, why was I wandering around in the desert in my nightgown in the middle of the night following the sound of my dog who is chewing on a dead animal? It's just very strange. How counterintuitive. What kid wakes up in the middle of the night in the remote desert, hears growling and chomping, then walks out barefoot alone into the desert to investigate? Exactly. And I, you know, I can't say that I was a bold kid, Stuart. I was kind of shy, a little nervous. I mean, when we were driving through Canvas, or uh, sorry, when we were driving through Kansas, I was sure that a tornado was going to kill us. Like there was a tornado was going to drop out of the sky and, and kill us. When Skylab was supposed to be coming down from the sky, I was sure Skylab was going to fall right on me. So I wasn't a courageous child. I was actually pretty nervous and anxious. So for me to just do that was very pretty pretty out of character, I have to say. Coupled with how inexplicable it is that your entire family has no recollection as to how picking up an entire family of hitchhikers in odd clothes in the desert resolved itself. Zero conclusion. Everyone <laughs> just forgets. No one can recall the entire family going their own way. And I know that memory is a, a weird thing and maybe these folks looked perfectly normal and it was a perfectly normal situation, but the fact that there was no resolve to that in my mind, where were we taking them? I mean, maybe one of them is listening to this and can write to us and say, that was me. I was the little kid you crawled over. I don't know. But no one in my family, that's, that's three other people. Nobody can remember what happened. I mean, my mom has since passed, of course, but she didn't remember that. So bizarre. So there was another occurrence during that trip that was equally strange. And, and like I said, we were, still, we were still visiting these strange communities. And there was one time I remember while we were still in the Southwest where my parents I think we were actually staying in a hotel that night, which was very unusual because we, we, if we stayed in a hotel, it was a motel and it was a flea bag motel. And my brother and I would just be like, yay, luxury and have a shower. Like we were so happy. But I remember one night we were staying in a motel and my parents 
said, oh, we're going to go to this gathering and it has something to do with a crystal skull and it's this group of people and we're, and we're going to go and leave you kids here. So, you know, enjoy your evening, watch some TV. And I remember when they came back that night, they were kind of freaked out. Like my mother, especially my dad doesn't freak out very easily, but my mother was kind of like, these people were really weird. And they had this crystal skull and they were like dangling things over it and worshiping it. And the very next day, she lost one of her favorite pieces of jewelry. And I think to the end of her life, she blamed that skull because she kind of wanted to go along with the crowd. So she dangled her necklace and it was like a little crystal. It was a really beautiful little rock crystal necklace that my dad had bought her. And she's like, okay, well, I'll dangle something over the skull. So she dangled it over the skull. And like the next day it was gone and she never found it again. And she was really upset and blamed the skull for that. So stuff like that was happening a lot with our family. But the thing that really stuck out was we had gone to up to Ohio because my great grandmother was near death. She was quite ill. And my father felt it was really important that we race up to Ohio and so that my brother and I could meet her before she died. And after that visit, we were driving and he's pretty sure this was in Ohio, but it's funny because he remembers the period of time that this happened, but he doesn't remember the actual event and neither does my brother, but we were somewhere in Ohio and we would often pull up, pull the RV into a parking lot, like at a mall late at night and just spend the night at the mall and then get up in the morning and use the bathroom at the mall and then get back on the road. But this time my father pulled off onto this weird little dirt road off the highway near, I think it was near a body of water, like a little pond or something. And we all went to sleep. Like, I think we ate a quick dinner and then we went to bed and all night long, I kept dreaming that there were people trying to get into our RV and like knocking on the doors and like scratching on the door and the windows. And it was really frightening. I, I just, it was like nightmare after nightmare. And then also our dog, Shawnee was growling and barking at the door of the RV and like scratching at it with her claws. So that was a really unusual for her. And we didn't, and I, my mom told me later that she didn't want to let her out that night. The next thing I know, I wake up in my, and we're already on the road and it was, it's like five in the morning and my dad is driving furiously. And I, I remember asking him and my mom, like, what, you know, what happened? How come we didn't stay there? And he goes, so, that place just wasn't right. It had bad energy. There was something wrong with that place. We just, I had to go. So my mom and I talked about it for the rest of her life and we would remember, okay, what, what was up with that? that night in this weird place in Ohio. And, you know, what was going on? Like, why was the dog so restless? And how come we all had, my mother was like, I had nightmares all night. Your dad had nightmares all night. I, I don't know about my brother. Cause honestly, Stuart, I've asked both my brother and my father multiple times if they remember this. 
and they neither of them do. And every time I ask them, it's like I've never asked them about it before. And they're just like, oh, no, I don't remember that. Oh, and I'm like, you remember this time? And they're like, huh, no, I, I don't remember that at all. And it's always as though it's the first time I've ever asked them. Like I, the first time I've ever brought it up. And I swear to God, I've asked both my brother and my father multiple times, what, what, what in the hell happened that night? The hilarious, bizarre amnesia. Family events, which should be indelible milestones, are simply blotted out for several family members. Escaping in an RV at 5 o'clock in the morning, adrenaline rushing through your body, dog agitated all night, everyone having nightmares. That's a chemical cocktail flooding the body. That should etch it permanently into the psyche. Instead, two of the people have recurring blank spots that had ever even occurred. Yeah, exactly. Like it was a Tuesday, you know, I mean, or that, it, yeah, that it never happened. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting thing. And like I said, like I always say, memory plays tricks on you, you know, you things change, but the fact that my mom and I talked about it until, until she passed, she passed about three years ago. That was a momentous night on that trip. It was creepy as hell too. Creepy as hell. So I do want to do some kind of reading or regression about that night because you hear about people being in their cars, falling asleep, beings trying to get in, and then bam, black, blackness. So now I think, <laughs> I think now the next place I would go is that we ended up after that trip moving to Orcas Island in Washington. And because my parents, my parents had visited Orcas Island at one point years before, and my mother fell absolutely in love with it. And she's like, we're going to live there one day. That's where I want to live. It's the most beautiful place in the world. So we ended up going up there. It was earlier than a year. We, we ended up not being on the road for an entire year. I think it just got old and and my brother and I got too big and, you know, it's kind of, it was time to settle down somewhere. So we went, we went across the country and went to Orcas Island and through just following his intuition, my father stumbles across this piece of property during a walk one day and it's called Indralea and it was a theosophical camp that had been on Orcas Island in that exact piece of property since I believe the 1930s. So my father being the charming kind of guy that he was, he got to know the people who lived there, the, the resident managers, and he talked them into letting the family move onto the property. So we just, they, there were multiple cabins there. It's right on the water, right on East Sound. It's an absolutely gorgeous piece of property. And we would exchange work, you know, once again, child labor at the age of what, 13. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, you know, we were refurbishing, and this was the winter time. We had to work like three to four hours a day, I believe. And I had never really experienced winter. I'd grown up, grown up in California and winter in the Northwest is pretty mild comparatively, but to me, it was like, oh my God, this is, you know, wet, dark, and cold. But we, you know, we trudge out every day and we work 
refurbishing cabins and getting things ready and kind of doing maintenance stuff. And then my, through that experience, my parents decided to become theosophists. So for the next few years, we lived at Indralea every summer. I think it was like three or four years. And my father actually became the summer manager. So Indralea was, this is a huge, this was a huge chapter in my life because I was literally surrounded once again by clairvoyants, healers, teachers, scholars of theosophy and the occult and the esoteric studies of Hinduism and Buddhism. And, and I'm still being homeschooled. I think my dad was like, yeah, let's, you know, don't bother going back to school. Just stay out of school. <laughs> you will just consider the theosophical studies as your schooling every summer. I met Dora Coons, who was at the time the president of the American Theosophical Society. She had developed this healing modality called therapeutic touch. And every summer they would do a therapeutic touch seminar for nurses. It was specifically for nurses to learn how to do this healing modality on their patients. And I learned right there along with them. I think I was by that time, 13, 14 years old. And it was really fascinating. I loved Dora. Dora was very cool. She had written a book in her youth because by the time I met her, I think she was in her mid to late seventies. She had written a book called the real world of fairies. And she taught because she could see fairies. She could see divas and elementals and rock spirits and she wrote it all down in this wonderful little book. And I loved that book and I read it and I just wanted, you know, I desperately wanted to see fairies and I didn't, I mean, I was surrounded by people who did, or they claimed that they did. And I was also surrounded by kids in the summer, my age. I mean, there was a whole gaggle of kids who came to camp we all worked and uh, to pay our way, essentially, we all slept outside in the meadow or we would sleep in this one big building called the teepee, which was beautiful, like gazebo style building with skylights. And all of us kids would just sleep in sleeping bags under the stars or sleep in that teepee if it was raining. And a lot of those kids had abilities. They could see auras, they could see fairies. Some of them were doing uh, automatic writing. Honestly, I think some of them may have been exploited a little bit by their parents because of their abilities. I mean, the boundaries weren't great, but I learned a lot by being there. And with every kind of happy community like that, there's also a dark side. And there were some people there, uh, they were a bit predatorial. Unfortunately, that was a time in my life where I kind of saw the dark side of these, these groups. And I, I'm not casting aspersions on the Theosophical Society at all. I'm just saying that there were people there who, who weren't there for the right reasons. And there were some issues on the property one year with dark entities kind of bothering people and people trying to banish those entities from certain cabins. So there was a dark side to this as well. 
and some, some kind of icky memories. And I think what I realized at that age was that if you get a bunch of people together who are into spirituality, there's always going to be a few who are narcissistic, megalomaniac. They want followers. They want to be gurus. And they will take advantage and they will exploit people sexually or otherwise. So that did happen. In fact, my father, bless his heart, was instrumental in getting rid of some of that stuff at the camp because he brought it out in the open and he was not liked for that. And I think the camp is still going strong. It's, it's a wonderful place. Everyone should check it out. But that was a dark period and a dark period for me as well. Can I ask how you would describe the dark entities? How did they attempt to banish them? Were they successful? You know, I, I actually don't know how they banished them or if they were successful, but there were certain cabins in the woods. I think there were about 20, 20 cabins. And I knew every, every one of them really well, because it was my job to clean them, you know, paint them more child labor. And they didn't feel good, some of those cabins. And I remember one woman who was at the camp for the entire summer, she had something, something dark attack her in the night. And I wasn't, and she, you know, she made it very clear to the, to everyone at the camp the next day that she needed help. And I honestly don't know what they did. I suspect they pulled out all the tools that they knew of to get rid of something like that. I don't know if it was crystals or spells or meditation or intention, sage. I have no idea. I, I don't know. I wasn't part of it. And, and us kids were kind of being shielded by shielded by the adults from this dark stuff, but it, it would trickle through. And we thought it was cool and interesting, of course. So honestly, Stuart, I, I don't know what the upshot of that was, but I do know that certain people had to leave and they left. So I think what I need to go to next is that ultimately, you know, living on Orcas Island, being part of the Theosophical Society, Oh God, being part of not just the Theosophical Society, but multiple other spiritual groups, because Orcas Island is a hub for spirituality and lots of different kinds of new age study and religious study. The Ramtha group was very attracted to the San Juan Islands and especially Orcas in the 80s. And by that time, I was really heavily, I, I decided to go to high school because I was really lonely and I was tired of living by, by myself in the woods, you know, except for the summer times where I got to see my friends. I was pretty much on my own. So I went back to high school and after high school, I got really heavily involved in the community theater on Orcas and the Ramtha, the folks from the Ramtha group who were situated mostly in Yelm, Washington, a bunch of those folks came to Orcas Island because Ramtha had told them that Orcas Island was going to be one of the most safe places for the coming, I don't know, apocalypse or 
the breakdown of society or some kind of economic collapse. So there was this flood of people who were following Ramtha at the time. And a lot of them were in the theater. And a lot of them were gay, uh, gay men who were some of the most artistic, fabulous people I'd ever met. Of course, I didn't know they were gay. They weren't out, but they, they started producing these incredible theater productions on the island. And I was dancing at the time. I was heavily into ballet. So I was recruited to be in these shows. And there was one particular director, his name was David York. And he was kind of like, he was kind of like the Pied Piper or, you know, the music man. He came to town and just like charmed everybody and, and was like, we're going to put on these fabulous shows. And, you know, everybody started getting on board in the community and like donating clothing and money. And it was really pretty lavish for a small island like that. And he was just amazing. And he was my mentor. And it was really sad because I, the last time I ever saw David probably in the late eighties and I had since left the island and he came up to me and gave me a big hug. And, and he said, I'm sorry to say that, you know, I have, I have full blown AIDS and I only have a few more months to live. And he showed me, you know, a lesion on his arm. And I wasn't a very emotional kid at that point. I had kind of decided to set my emotions and my intuitions and everything aside, I was pretty sick of like new age communities at the time. And not, not that David had anything to do with that, but I, I was pretty shut down emotionally. And I remember going, Oh, okay. And then walking away and not thinking about it. And it turned out that several, I think maybe two or three of the, the, the people who had come with the Ramtha group and gotten into the theater, these wonderful gay men had died of AIDS within the next couple of years. That was a very sad time. So after I lived on Orcas and I spent some time in England for a year and then I came back and I, I moved to Seattle, I'm kind of fast forwarding a bit, but I suddenly came down with pelvic inflammatory disease. And this was a very bizarre thing that I went through in my early twenties. You know, I was, I had a boyfriend and I had just met a new boyfriend and I assumed that this was something that happens. And I also always had this fear as a teenager of be, becoming sick, of having problems with my reproductive organs. That was like, I was more afraid of that than getting pregnant. And it was just this horrible fear. And then suddenly it happened and I was struck down terribly. I was, it was such a bad infection. I had to be on antibiotics for like three or four weeks. I was, I had to sleep all the time. I was exhausted by that. And what I was told by the doctors at the time was that I probably couldn't have kids after that terrible infection. And also that I tested negative for any kind of STD whatsoever, which didn't surprise me because I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't like a running around being promiscuous or anything, but to everyone around me, the adults who I knew that this was really tragic because I was only like 20 and they were like, you know, you're never probably never going to have kids, but that couldn't be proven. And secretly I was happy about that because I never wanted to have children. I was like, no children. I made that decision at the age of 15. It was not going to be my bag. 
So subsequently for the next five years after that, I, I didn't menstruate, my hormones were screwed up. And since I've kind of gotten into the study of experiencers and especially abductees, there are so many women my age and older who had these kinds of reproductive issues. And I, and I honestly can't say, I, I don't know if I'm a contactee. I don't know if I was, I don't remember it, but I, I realized in looking back that it was, it was the formative age. I, you know, I was young and it was a very bizarre thing for me for, to, to happen for me. And the consequences of that were long-term. So I really feel for contactees and abductees who have been part of the, the so-called hybridization program who are suffering with these reproductive issues after so many years. So that happened. And honestly, I kind of left my sort of UFO paranormal obsessions behind at some point. I think I did that maybe in literally in my early twenties, like I wasn't interested in that stuff anymore. I wasn't interested in anybody who said they had any kind of clairvoyance or vision or intuition or any kind of healing modality. I just wanted it to be gone. I just wanted to live my life as a, I was studying acting. I wanted to be a professional actor or professional dancer I went to college. I went to Cornish College of the Arts in theater department. That was a, a really great time of my life. Very stressful. But I, I was like, no, new age, gone, out of my life, not interested. Rock and roll, jazz. I was really into jazz, live jazz. I would go to all these wonderful concerts at that time. So it wasn't until I was in my late 30s, honestly, that I suddenly became obsessed with the paranormal again. And it kind of started with a few shows and a few videos. And, and by that time I was married to my first husband who was a playwright and a wonderful guy. And he had had in his youth, a near death experience when he was about 12 or 13. And it was a typical near death experience where he he was actually playing with a bunch of kids, you know, unsupervised the seventies and his parents were partying and they were in a barn and he thought it would be fun to jump out of the, the top of the barn where there was this hay, a bunch of hay being stored. And there was a doorway and he thought it'd be fun to jump down off of that and grab onto this wire that was right above the barn. And he had no idea electric wire. And he, he literally electrocuted himself by grabbing onto this wire and falling to the ground. And then he said, he basically went into a tunnel of lights and there were beings and they said, it's not your time. And he was like, I don't want to go. I, I want to stay with you. This is so wonderful and blissful. And they are like, Nope, you have things to do. You need to go back. So when I met him, he had that story and he'd also gone through a period of channeling in the eighties, like suddenly he was channeling out of like everybody was doing, he was channeling, but he said it wasn't something he tried to do. It happened to him and it got to be so stressful that he asked it to go away and it went away. He stopped channeling. So by the time he and I were married, he wasn't doing much of that anymore, but he was really into Buddhism. 
he was reading books like the holographic universe um return of the bird tribe and the seth material and incidentally the seth material was my dad had recorded a ton of seth material on cassette tape so during our trip in the rv we were listening to seth material when i was a kid but i didn't wasn't paying much attention so now fast forward to you know the 90s i'm married and listening to the seth material and kind of getting back into spirituality again and suddenly i'm also getting into ufos and so together he and i were kind of kind of into ufos you know we were also into road trips and we would drive out to the desert regularly and one time we drove down to uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, where my step-grandfather lived and we visited White Sands. So like, there's a great picture of me, you know, in White Sands with this little kind of 1940s dress on. And, and one time on one of these road trips, we were actually driving up the coast, going back to Seattle, but on the way, we were gonna visit my grandparents in the Bay Area. So we were in Los Angeles going through Silicon Valley, visiting my grandparents in Los Altos Hills, and then heading back to, up to Seattle. So we leave Los Angeles one day, uh, this particular day. We're driving along, we're chatting, and you know we're having a nice time. And all of a sudden, we're in the Bay Area. Like, and we're so confused. We're, we're like, wait a minute. We just left Los Angeles, like, literally like two hours ago. This normally, and the traffic was normal, and, and everybody knows it takes a lot longer to get from Los Angeles to the Bay Area than two hours when there's traffic in the middle of the day. And we looked at each other and we were like, holy shit, like what happened? It's like we just fast forwarded literally two and a half, three hours. Very confused. We were so confused. We went to my grandparents' house. They were really happy to see us and we went on our way and we kind of forgot about it for a long time. And, you know, it wasn't until recently that I learned, I had, I had read Missing Time by Bud Hopkins at some point in my life. So I thought missing time was one thing, but compressed time, which now I know is what it's called. I never, I never thought of that as compressed time. I, I thought about that as just something really bizarre that happened. And now I know there's such a thing as compressed time. And I can talk to my ex-husband about it. And he's like, yep, it happened. It definitely happened. And uh, no doubt about it. This is Mitch, Kirsten's ex-husband, sharing his recollection of this compressed time event. Five and a half to six hour drive, it, invariably. If you were breaking the law severely, you could do it in four. We got in the car, drove, everything was completely mundane about it. You know, we were chatting and driving. And then, this is my memory, we looked up and saw the upcoming exits to the Bay Area. And our time, our watch basically said that we'd only been driving two, two and a half hours in that range, which seemed impossible. Of course, my response was like wow i uh, i'm not sure how that happened but whatever and it was very it was very striking it, it i didn't have any epiphany about it or anything but i definitely remember being 
awestruck by the fact of it. The fact that we had accomplished uh, something in two and a half hours that should have taken six hours to do. And uh, I never noticed any anomalous events or anything like that. So it all seemed very, very regular, very normal in an odd way. I mean, I've had myself so many odd, inexplicable experiences of my own that I don't have any frame of reference for in terms of this particular three-dimensional world that we live in now that I, you know, I don't really have an interpretation of it, except that somehow we were transported <laughs> from one place to another without knowing it. That's what I got. You know, these kinds of things I, I tend to take in stride because I've had so many experiences that I have no, what do you say, reasonable explanation for. So this is felt, felt like some sort of transportation event, although I never noticed it. It was completely done in a way that we didn't see it, didn't see it coming, didn't feel it. I didn't, maybe she did, but yeah. What is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you? I'd say the, the most, the weirdest thing that has happened to me where I didn't have any frame of reference for it, nor to this day have an explanation for it, was I had two specific events almost exactly 10 years apart where I, I'm going to say it, it seemed as if I was somehow possessed by another entity, not an evil one. I had the experience and it was both intriguing and incredibly frightening at the time. Mostly intriguing, though, I'll say, in that it, there was a lot of, it was very benign or it was not malignant. It was very much a presence that had seemed to have my best interest at heart. I never did come up with an explanation for it. And it happened twice, uh, almost exactly 10 years apart. And there were witnesses to it. I had this experience and was given, actually gifted with certain abilities that I had for years, not the least of which was being able to sort of shift the way I see things to take in the actual what seemed to be kind of the ether in the air. And I could do it almost effortlessly. That's, that's not the case for me anymore, but <laughs> yeah, that's the weirdest thing. The first time that it happened, I was just embarking on an artistic career. The second time it happened, I was embarking on a shift from one artistic expression to another. So I was an actor the first time, and the second time I had resolved to stop acting and become a writer. Yeah, so, and both those things took place. So, yeah. Back to Kirsten. So I guess it wasn't until about 2010, which was a really big year for me, where I really, really went back into spirituality, the paranormal, ufology, big time. Like I was with a new partner. My husband and I had divorced my current partner now, who's a deer. And we were living in Seattle. And we moved from Capitol Hill to Leshy, which is a really adorable part of Seattle and very wooded, lots of owls, by the way. And when we moved to that location, 
I slowly started getting sick. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Kirsten Blackburn. I'm trying something new this month. Become a patron at the $100 level and get an original painting by me, Stuart Davis. Not a print, an original. These works feature images and figured with poems in a language I constructed called Is. In the show notes, you can find links to a couple videos that introduce the Is language, explain why I created it, and how I use it to make artwork. It all also connects to the light languages and other modes of communique which experiencers often delve into. Watch the videos, become a patron at a $100 or more level, and get one original painting in the Is language. Is makes Esperanto look like Pig Latin. So support the show, get some original art, or remain a Minus listener and I will make your name mean something repugnant in Is. Is that clear, Susan? Beyond that, what else do patrons and plusers get? They get to hear me sing The Devil Went Down to Georgia to the tune of Easy Like Sunday Morning. Because the devil went down to Georgia. Fire, oh fire. Fire on the mountain, run boys run. Plus members get a special unit of measurement which combines feet and meters. It's called feeders. If you have trouble converting meters to feet or feet to meters, just become a patron and get feeders. It simplicates everything. Plus members get to understand Morrissey. Minus members have to explain Morrissey to Morrissey without displeasing Morrissey or using the word Morrissey. Patrons and plusers get into the Naughty Palace, provided they follow the rules of the Naughty Palace. Naughty Palace. Naughty Palace. One, take off the shoes before entering the Naughty Palace. Hand in your shoes to the administrator. Administrator shoes, fools. Two, forbid to carry sharp things when playing as knife. Damn. It's Three, forbid to quarreling do some practical jokes when playing. Mm. Please don't quarrel, it's Four, when playing at the ball pool, the tourist can't throw with the balls. Hey tourist, that's for surest, don't throw with the balls. Five, obey the Naughty Palace's safe navigation. <laughs> Six, forbid slip from the tube with the head downward. Seven, forbid stay long in the tubes. Don't treat the tube like a Rubik's Cube. Naughty Palace. Use some lube. Eight. Forbid stool and urine spit in everywhere. Yeah, bitch. This ain't thick yeah. 
is nine. If the tourist has heart disease, infection disease, psychosis disease, stupid disease, any disease, if forbid to play in it. Ten. Forbid shooting at a close distance when playing with the gun and artillery. Not permit to peer the gun point with your eyes. Forbid to carry edible beverages in the naughty palace. Eleven. Not permit to touch with the flying saucer and the airplane. Not permit to touch with flying saucer and the airplane. <laughs> Why do you think we come to the naughty palace? Oh, we're gonna touch that fucking flying saucer. <laughs> yeah. Touch it, patrons. Touch it, blessers. Touch that flying saucer. All the angel hair talk in this episode reminded me of some articles I'd seen on the Ancient Code website and also the BBC. We will link to these in the show notes if you want to investigate further on your own. Angel hair, of course, consists of strands of gossamer-like threads which are gelatinous and ephemeral. The substance dissolves quickly upon touch and has been experienced in combination with some historic anomalous events. In addition to the sun whirling about the sky, visions of the Virgin Mary, some reported angel hair falling. And I wonder if the angel hair name perhaps arose in association with this purported miracle. Maybe a listener can provide some etymology in an email. At any rate, later in 1959, again in Portugal, angel hair fell from the sky and onto a military base where pilots were preparing to train. Hours later, just a few kilometers away, angel hair coated the entire city of Avora, Portugal. The sky was clear that day, after multiple sightings of multiple UFOs which were said to look like deep-sea creatures, a layer of the gelatinous filaments descended, causing the schools to be evacuated. These events were covered in the book Files from the Edge, which we'll link to in the show notes. On this occasion, samples of the angel hair were gathered and described as perhaps being single-celled organisms. There was further conjecture that maybe the substance was generated by insects. Someone should tell the UFOs because the weird part of this incident is that Professor Joaquim Juarez do Amoral, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who, as director of the local industrial school, got out a telescope and observed one UFO in great detail. He described it like a living jellyfish in the sky. In tandem with the jellyfish UFO, for hours angel hair fell to the ground and again children played with it, much to the displeasure of do Amoral, who seems to have had a hell of a lot on his plate that day. In the laboratory, the angel hair was observed to be microorganisms, which had a nucleus four millimeters thick of yellow or egg color. Extending from the nucleus were 10 tentacles of an intense red hue. It was described as having defensive reactions when being studied. Over time, this coloration changed to darker and darker tones. 
The angel hair biological form was observed for two years but deteriorated steadily until no longer fruitful. Dr. Maria Jose Escaria Santos, a biologist who studied the angel hair forms, said they resembled Coelenterata, a species that includes sea anemones and coral creatures, but that ultimately these angel hair thingies really couldn't be classified. Professor Amaral handed over surviving samples to the Lisboa Faculty of Science for more in-depth analysis. There was a fire at the facility. <laughs> Of course, of course there was a fire. <laughs> because reasons. There was a formal investigation following up on all of this by the Center of Transdisciplinary Studies. The study was inconclusive as to the nature of the angel hair, but clear that many, many people saw the UFOs and handled the strange substance. They speculated that perhaps this was an undiscovered high-altitude microorganism. Now, one more awesome angel hair incident before we go. October 27, 1954, Tuscany, Italy. 10,000 people were gathered in a stadium for some sport thing. An ovoid UFO brought the entire event to a stupefied standstill as it moved slowly over the spectators. Simultaneously, a strange substance began to fall from the sky. Shimmering as it dropped, the entire stadium was wrapped, captivated, play stopped. Boni, a player on the field, recalled 60 years later, quote, I think they were extraterrestrial. That's what I believe, and there's no other explanation I can give myself. End quote. Another, Romolo Tucci, agrees, quote, in those years, everybody was talking about aliens, everybody was talking about UFOs, and we had the experience. We saw them. We saw them directly, for real." End quote. In fact, that day, there were sightings in numerous towns all over Tuscany. They continued into the days that followed. Roberto Pinotti, president of the National UFO Center in Italy, said, quote, it is a fact that at the same time the UFOs were seen, there was a strange, sticky substance falling from above. In English, we call this angel hair. The only problem is after a short period of time, it disintegrates." End quote. Amazingly, Pinotti witnessed the angel hair phenomenon himself at the age of 10. Quote, I remember in broad daylight seeing the roofs of the houses in Florence covered in this white substance for one hour, like snow. It just evaporated. No one knows what this strange substance has to do with UFOs." End quote. Witnesses in Tuscany described the angel hair to be silky cobwebs. It disintegrated on contact. A journalist in Florence received hundreds of calls about the UFO and the angel hair. He was able to find a section of forest so densely covered in the substance, he gathered a good amount of it around matchsticks. The angel hair was analyzed by the Institute of Chemical Analysis at the University of Florence. It contained boron, silicon, calcium, and magnesium. It was not radioactive. It was also destroyed in the process. Yes, there are spiders that migrate using webbed strands as sails. Spider silk is a protein containing nitrogen, calcium, hydrogen, and oxygen. These samples studied in Portugal were found to be 
on one hand living microscopic life forms, and other samples studied in Florence contained boron, silicon, calcium, and magnesium. If nothing else, for a day in 1954, soccer was celestial. Aliens and Artist is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, including transpersonal hypnotherapy, past life regression, anomalous experiences, and creativity as a spiritual path. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session or click the link in the show notes. And The Experiencer Group, a membership site for experiencers of all variety of anomalous phenomena. From mediumship, near-death, out-of-body, non-human entities, and much more. Help build a positive anomalous culture. Go to theexperiencergroup.com or click the link in the show notes to become a member. Innocent three-way between a man and a wife And this waitress girl in fishnet tights The minute a bar and it just felt right Everybody